Greetings, listeners. We're back once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits like the Dreamlands, or things of a weird nature, or things that are Lovecraftian leaning, weird fiction, science fiction, horror, learn of terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins and vast staircases that lead down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds and in different time-space continua. From the creation of our galaxy to the death of the sun, this is an exploration of the Cthulhu mythos from the perspective of humans' concept of history. We are the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. You can find us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Season 8. Greetings and welcome to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And between episodes, let's see... 107 and 134, we will be talking about the Beetle. The Beetle, a mystery, is a 1897 horror novel by British writer Richard Marsh. To tell you about it is to spoil it. So check it out, and that'll be going on from now until sometime in December. This episode is brought to you by FoundOutOnClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Subscribe to PGTTCM with D.B. Spitzer and Seraphie. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, we prefer Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Check out the new website over at PGTTCM.com and check out the merch table over at PGTTCM.Threadless.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PGTTCM. Or check us out on YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod, featuring The Hive, Ghost Story, Ghost Processional, Oppressive Gloom, and our theme song, The Chamber. Chapter 16, Atherton's Magic Vapor. I bore him off to supper at the Helicon. All the way in the cab, he was trying to tell me the story of how he proposed to Marjorie, and he was very far from being through with it when we reached the club. There was the usual crowd of supperites, but we got a little table to ourselves in a corner of the room, and before anything was brought for us to eat, he was at it again. A good many of the people were pretty near to shouting, and as they seemed to all be speaking at once, and the band was playing, and as the Helicon supper band is not piano, Percy did not have it quite all to himself. But considering the delicacy of his subject, he talked as loudly as was decent getting more so as he went on, but Percy is peculiar. I don't know how many times I've tried to tell her, over and over again. Have you now? Yes, 
pretty near every time I met her, but I never seemed to get quite to it, don't you know? How was that? Why, just as I was going to say, Miss Linden, may I offer the gift of my affection? Was that how you invariably intended to begin? Well, not always. One time like that, another time another way. Fact is, I got off a little speech by heart, but I never got a chance to reel it off, so I made up my mind to just say anything. And what did you say? Well, nothing. You see, I never got there. Just as I was feeling my way, she'd asked me if I preferred big sleeves to little ones, or top hats to billy cocks, or some nonsense of the kind. Would she now? Yes, of course I had to answer, and by the time I'd answer, the chance was lost. Percy was polishing his eyeglass. I tried to get there so many times, and she choked me off so often that I can't help thinking that she suspected what it was that I was after. You think she did? She must have done. Once I followed her down Piccadilly and shivvied her into a glove shop in the Burlington Arcade. I meant to propose to her in there. I hadn't had a wink of sleep all night through dreaming of her, and I was just about desperate. And did you propose? The girl behind the counter made me buy a dozen pairs of gloves instead. They turned out to be three sizes too large for me when they came home. I believe she thought I'd gone to spoon the glove girl. She went out and left me there. That girl loaded me with all sorts of things when she was gone. I couldn't get away. She held me with her blessed eye. I believe it was a glass one. Miss Linden's or the glove girl's? The glove girl's. She sent me home a whole cart full of green ties and declared I'd ordered them. I shall never forget that day. I've never been up the arcade since and never mean to. You gave Miss Linden a wrong impression. I don't know. I was always giving her wrong impressions. Once she said that she knew I was not a marrying man, that I was the sort of chap who never would marry because she saw it in my face. Under the circumstances, that was trying. Bitter hard. Percy sighed again. I shouldn't mind if I wasn't so gone. I'm not a fellow who does get gone, but when I do get gone, I get so beastly gone. I tell you what, Percy, have a drink. I, I'm a teetotaler. You know I am. You talk of your heart being broken, and of your being a teetotaler in the same breath. If your heart were really broken, you'd throw teetotalism to the winds. Do you think so? Why? Because you would. Men whose hearts are broken always do. You'd swallow a magnum at the least. Percy groaned. When I drink, I'm always ill. But I'll have a try. He had a try, making a good beginning by emptying at a draft the glass which the waiter had just now filled. Then he relapsed into melancholy. Tell me, Percy, honest Indian, do you really love her? Love her? His eyes grew round as saucers. Don't I tell you that I love her? I know you tell me, but that sort of thing is easy telling. What does it make you feel like, this love you talk so much about? Feel like? Well, just anyhow, and know how. You should look inside me, and then you'd know. I see. It's like that, is it? Suppose she loved another man. What sort of feeling would you feel towards him? Does she love another man? I say, suppose. 
I dare say she does. I expect that's it. What an idiot I am not to have thought of that before. He sighed and refilled his glass. He's a lucky chap, whoever he is. I'd, I'd like to tell him so. You'd like to tell him so. He's such a jolly lucky chap, you know. Possibly. But his jolly good luck is your jolly bad luck. Would you be willing to resign her to him without a word? If she loves him. But you say you love her. Of course I do. Well then, you don't suppose that because I love her, I shouldn't like to see her happy? I'm not such a beast. I'd sooner see her happy than anything else in all the world. I see. Even happy with another? I'm afraid that my philosophy is not like yours. If I loved Miss Linden, and she loved, say, Jones, I'm afraid I shouldn't feel like that towards Jones at all. What would you feel like? Murder. Percy, you come home with me. We've begun the night together, let's end it together, and I'll show you one of the finest notions for committing murder on a scale of real magnificence you ever dreamed of. I should like to make use of it to show my feelings toward the suppositious Jones. He'd know what I felt for him when once he'd been introduced to it. Percy went with me without a word. He had not had much to drink, but it had been too much for him, and he was in a condition of maundering sentimentality. I got him into a cab. We dashed along Piccadilly. He was silent and sat looking in front of him with an air of vacuous sullenness which ill became his cast of countenance. I bade the cabman pass through Lounge Square. As we passed the Apostles, I pulled him up. I pointed out the place to Woodville. You see, Percy, that's Lessingham's house. That's the house of the man who went away with Marjorie. Yes. Words came from him slowly, with a quite unnecessary stress on each. Because he made a speech. I'd like to make a speech. One day I'll make a speech. Because he made a speech. Only that and nothing more. When a man speaks with an apostle's tongue, he can witch any woman in the world. Hello, what's that? Lessingham, is that you? I saw, or thought I saw, someone or something glide up the steps and withdraw into the shadow of the doorway as if unwilling to be seen. When I hailed, no one answered. I called again. Don't be shy, my friend. I sprang out of the cab, ran across the pavement and up the steps. To my surprise, there was no one in the doorway. It seemed incredible, but the place was empty. I felt about me with my hands, as if I had been playing at blind man's buff, and grasped at vacancy. I came down a step or two. Ostensibly, there is a vacuum which nature abhors. I say, driver, didn't you see someone come up the steps? I thought I did, sir. I could have sworn I did. So could I. It's very odd. Perhaps whoever it was has gone into the house, sir. I don't see how. We should have heard the door open if we hadn't seen it, and we should have seen it. It's not so dark as that. I've half a mind to ring the bell and inquire. I shouldn't do that if I was you, sir. You jump in and I'll get along. This is Mr. Lessingham's, the great Mr. Lessingham's. I believe the cabman thought that I was drunk, and not respectable enough to claim acquaintance with the great Lessingham. 
Wake up, Woodville. Do you know I believe there's some mystery about this place? I feel assured of it. I feel as if I were in the presence of something uncanny, something which I can neither see, nor touch, nor hear. The cabman bent down from his seat, wheedling me. Jump in, sir, and we'll be getting along. I jumped in, and we got along, but not far. Before we had gone a dozen steps, I was out again, without troubling the driver to stop. He pulled up, aggrieved. Well, sir, what's the matter now? You'll be damaging yourself before you're done, and then you'll be blaming me. I had caught sight of a cat crouching in the shadow of the railings, a black one. That cat was my quarry. Either the creature was unusually sleepy, or slow, or stupid, or it had lost its wits, which a cat seldom does lose. Anyhow, without making an attempt to escape, it allowed me to grab it by the nape of the neck. So soon as we were inside my laboratory, I put the cat into my glass box. Percy stared. What have you put it in there for? That, my dear Percy, is what you are shortly about to see. You are about to be the witness of an experiment which, to a legislator such as you are, ought to be of the greatest possible interest. I am going to demonstrate on a small scale the action of the force which, on a large scale, I propose to employ on behalf of my native land. He showed no signs of being interested. Sinking into a chair, he recommenced his wearisome reiteration. I hate cats. Do let it go. I'm always miserable when there's a cat in the room. Nonsense. That's your fancy. What you want's a taste of whiskey. You'll be as chirpy as a cricket. I don't want anything more to drink. I've had too much already. I paid no heed to what he said. I poured two stiff doses into a couple of tumblers. Without seeming to be aware of what it was that he was doing, he disposed of the better half of the one I gave him at a draft. Putting his glass upon the table, he dropped his head upon his hands and groaned. What would Marjorie think of me if she saw me now? Think? Nothing. Why should she think of a man like you when she has so much better fish to fry? I'm feeling frightfully ill. I'll be drunk before I'm done. Then be drunk. Only for gracious sake, be lively drunk, not deadly doleful. Cheer up, Percy. I clapped him on the shoulder, almost knocking him off his seat onto the floor. I am now going to show you that little experiment of which I was speaking. You see that, cat? Of course I see it, the beast. I wish you'd let it go. Why should I let it go? Do you know whose cat that is? That cat's Paul Lessingham's. Paul Lessingham's? Yes, Paul Lessingham's, the man who made the speech, the man whom Marjorie went away with. How do you know it's his? I don't know it is, but I believe it is. I choose to believe it is. I intend to believe it is. It was outside his house, therefore it's his cat. That's how I argue. I can't get Lessingham inside that box, so I get his cat instead. Whatever for? You shall see. You observe how happy it is? It doesn't seem happy. We've all our ways of seeming happy. That's its way. The creature was behaving like a cat gone mad, dashing itself against the sides of its glass prison, leaping to and fro and from side to side, squealing with rage or with terror or with both. Perhaps it foresaw what was coming. 
there is no fathoming the intelligence of what we call the lower animals. It's a funny way. We some of us have funny ways besides cats. Now attention, observe this little toy. You've seen something of its kind before. It's a spring gun. You pull the spring, drop the charge into the barrel, release the spring, and the charge is fired. I'll unlock this safe, which is built into the wall. It's a better lock. The combination just now is whiskey. You see, that's a hint to you. You'll notice the safe is strongly made. It's airtight, fireproof. The outer casing is of triple-plated, drill-proof steel. The contents are valuable to me, and devilish dangerous. I'd pity the thief who, in his innocent ignorance, broke into steel. Look inside. You see, it's full of balls, glass balls, each in its own little separate nest, light as feathers, transparent. You can see right through them. Here are a couple like tiny pills. They contain neither dynamite nor cordite nor anything of the kind. Yet, given a fair field and no favor, they'll work more mischief than all the explosives man has fashioned. Take hold of one. You say your heart is broken? Squeeze this under your nose. It wants but a gentle pressure, and in less time than no time, you'll be in the land where they say there are no broken hearts. He shrunk back. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't want the thing. Take it away. Think twice. The chance may not recur. I tell you, I don't want it. Sure, consider. Of course, I'm sure. Then the cat shall have it. Let the poor brute go. The poor brute's going to the land which is so near and yet so far. Once more, if you please, attention. Notice what I do with this toy gun. I pull back the spring. I insert this small glass pellet. I thrust the muzzle of the gun through the opening in the glass box which contains the apostle's cat. You'll observe it fits quite close, which on the whole is perhaps as well for us. I am about to release the spring. Close attention, please. Notice the effect. Atherton, let the brute go. The brute's gone. I've released the spring. The pellet has been discharged. It is struck against the roof of the glass box. It has been broken by the contact. And hey, presto! The cat lies dead. That in face of its nine lies. You perceive how still it is. How still? Let's hope that now it's really happy. The cat, which I choose to believe is Paul Lessingham's, has received its quietus. In the morning, I'll send it back to him with my respectful compliments. He'll miss it if I don't. Reflect. Think of a huge bomb filled with what we'll call Atherton's magic vapor. Fired, say, from a hundred and twenty-ton gun, bursting at a given elevation over the heads of an opposing force. Properly managed, in less than an instant of time, a hundred thousand men, quite possibly more, would drop down dead, as if smitten by the lightning of the skies. Isn't that something like a weapon, sir? I'm not well. I want to get away. I wish I'd never come. That was all Woodville had to say. Rubbish! You're adding to your stock of information every second, and in these days, when a member of Parliament is supposed to know all about everything, information's the one thing wanted. Empty your glass, man. That's the time of day for you. I handed him the tumbler. He drained what was left of its contents. Then, 
In a fit of tipsy, childish temper, he flung the tumbler from him. I had placed, carelessly enough, the second pellet within a foot of the edge of the table. The shock of the heavy beaker striking the board close to it set it rolling. I was at the other side. I started forward to stop its motion, but I was too late. Before I could reach the crystal globule, it had fallen off the edge of the table onto the floor at Woodville's feet and smashed in falling. As it smashed, he was looking down, wondering, no doubt, in his stupidity, what the pother was about, for I was shouting and making something of a clatter in my efforts to prevent the catastrophe which I saw was coming. On the instant, as the vapor secreted in the broken pellet gained access to the air, he fell forward onto his face. Rushing to him, I snatched his senseless body from the ground and dragged it staggeringly towards the door which opened onto the yard. Flinging the door open, I got him into the open air. As I did so, I found myself confronted by someone who stood outside. It was Lessingham's mysterious Egypto-Arabian friend, my morning's visitor. End of chapter 16 Recording by Alan Winteroud boomcoach.blogspot.com Chapter 17 Magic or Miracle The passage into the yard from the electrically lit laboratory was a passage from brilliancy to gloom. The shrouded figure standing in the shadow was like some object in a dream. My own senses reeled. It was only because I had resolutely held my breath and kept my face averted that I had not succumbed to the fate which had overtaken Woodville. Had I been a moment longer in gaining the open air, it would have been too late. As it was, in placing Woodville on the ground, I stumbled over him. My senses left me. Even as they went, I was conscious of exclaiming, remembering the saying about the engineer being hoist by his own petard, Atherton's magic vapor. My sensations on returning to consciousness were curious. I found myself being supported in someone's arms. A stranger's face was bending over me, and the most extraordinary pair of eyes I had ever seen were looking into mine. Who the deuce are you? I asked. Then understanding that it was my uninvited visitor, with scant ceremony, I drew myself away from him. By the light which was streaming through the laboratory door, I saw that Woodville was lying close beside me, stark and still. "'Is he dead?' I cried. "'Percy, speak, man. It's not so bad with you as that.' But it was pretty bad, so bad that, as I bent down and looked at him, my heart beat uncomfortably fast, lest it was as bad as it could be. His heart seemed still. The vapor took effect directly on the cardiac centers. To revive their action, and that instantly, was indispensable. Yet my brain was in such a whirl that I could not even think of how to set about beginning. Had I been alone, it is more than probable Woodville would have died. As I stared at him senselessly, aimlessly, the stranger, passing his arms beneath the body, extended himself at full length upon its motionless form. Putting his lips to Percy's, he seemed to be pumping life from his own body into the unconscious man's. As I gazed bewildered, surprised, presently there came a movement of Percy's body. 
His limbs twitched as if he was in pain. By degrees, the motions became convulsive, till on a sudden he bestirred himself to such effect that the stranger was rolled right off him. I bent down to find that the young gentleman's condition still seemed very far from satisfactory. There was a rigidity about the muscles of his face, a clamminess about his skin, a disagreeable suggestiveness about the way in which his teeth and the whites of his eyes were exposed, which was uncomfortable to contemplate. The stranger must have seen what was passing through my mind, not a very difficult thing to see. Pointing to the recumbent Percy, he said, with that queer foreign tang of his, which, whatever it seemed like in the morning, sounded musical enough just then, all will be well with him. I am not so sure. The stranger did not deign to answer. He was kneeling on one side of the victim of modern science, I on the other. Passing his hand to and fro in front of the unconscious countenance, as if by magic all semblance of discomfort vanished from Percy's features, and to all appearances he was placidly asleep. Have you hypnotized him? What does it matter? If it was a case of hypnotism, it was very neatly done. The conditions were both unusual and trying. The effect produced seemed all that could be desired. The change brought about in half a dozen seconds was quite remarkable. I began to be aware of a feeling of quasi-respect for Paul Lessingham's friend. His morals might be peculiar, and manners he might have none, but in this case, at any rate, the end seems to have justified the means. He went on. He sleeps. When he awakes, he will remember nothing that has been. Leave him. The night is warm. All will be well. As he said, the night was warm, and it was dry. Percy would come to little harm by being allowed to enjoy for a while the pleasant breezes. So I acted on the stranger's advice and left him lying in the yard while I had a little interview with the impromptu physician. End of chapter 17 Recording by Alan Winterout, boomcoach.blogspot.com.